I do believe in astrology, and I also know from astrology that there are certain places in the world that hold energy, uh, holds energy for certain people. And it's got to be London for me. Years ago, it started with Rivers Deep Mountains High, and now it started much later. Uh, that was my first hit here. And then later on, it's uh, my career is start. My solo career is actually starting here. That was the one and only, the great Tina Turner. Sadly, now the late great Tina Turner, who passed away on May 24th, 2023, at age 83, one week into the start of her Uranus return. This is Sean Nygaard with Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. I thought it only fitting, given that Tina Turner is one of the artists nearest and dearest to my heart and to my life, that I dedicate an episode of the podcast to Tina. So this is Thunder and Lightning, a tribute to Tina Turner. Now, I thought of using the introduction music to my podcast, except there's really no music in an episode about Tina Turner that could be any kind of substitute. So in this episode, we will do without. Now, back in the early to mid-80s, I knew the song, What's Love Got to Do With It, but my older brother gave me as a gift the album to Private Dancer. I didn't grow up with a lot of money, so buying music was tricky. I would buy a record single when I knew the song and really liked it, but to buy a whole album usually meant you were taking a chance, because unlike today, back then you couldn't sample the albums. If I knew What's Love Got to Do With It from the Private Dancer album, I didn't know what I was getting into if I bought the whole album. So I was thrilled when my older brother gave me the album as a gift. And something shifted in me when I heard the opening track, I Might Have Been Queen, with its opening lines, I'm a new pair of eyes every time I am born. Listening to the song, where Tina reflects on the possibilities of her past lives, I had never heard anybody sing like that. I had never heard a song like that. Talking about past lives, but also nations and empires. It's an epic song. And I also had never heard of Tina Turner before What's Love Got to Do With It. So beginning to understand that album as a comeback, and opening with the song I Might Have Been Queen, felt all the more powerful. I've basically got two things to do in this episode. The first is to look at Tina Turner's natal chart, her birth chart. And the second is to look at the transits from the time she left Ike Turner to when she became Tina. And because this is a podcast, you can just listen to the audio, but I'm also providing visuals. I've got a PDF of the charts linked to this episode that you can follow along with. Depending on where you get your podcasts, there should be a link that connects to the PDF of charts, or you can find it on my website at imagineastrology.com on the podcast page. It's got six charts total, the first of which is her natal chart. And for folks who have been listening to the podcast along the way, this may be the most overtly astrological episode so far, 
And if you like what I've been talking about and how I've been talking about astrology, know that there may be more technical things in this episode, which I will explain along the way, and they may not immediately make perfect sense, but I figure it's okay to just listen to astrology talk. It's great as a part of learning astrology to just listen to people talk about things you don't necessarily understand, but can begin to make sense along the way if you continue to learn astrology. So you can follow along with the charts that I've numbered one through six. And of course, the first chart, chart number one, is the natal chart. Tina was born Anna May Bullock on November 26th, 1939 in Nutbush, Tennessee at 10.10 p.m. Central Time. You can see from the chart that her sun is in the sign of Sagittarius, her moon is in Gemini, and her rising sign is Leo. And while the sun, moon, and rising signs are vital positions in a chart and tell us a lot, I want to get at the core of Tina, the essence of Tina. What made her life so extraordinary? What are the archetypal patterns she was living with? What are the archetypal patterns that lived through her? So I'm going to take apart her chart bit by bit and bring these pieces together. And I always keep in mind when looking at charts that archetypes are neutral. They're not actually good or bad. They're not really light or shadow, positive or negative. They're neutral because aspects and alignments that might be difficult for one person might not be for somebody else. If we move along to chart two, I'm going to begin with Saturn retrograde in Aries, conjunct the south node in Aries. Now, generally speaking, Saturn in Aries can be quite challenging, but Saturn in Aries has a lot of fight about it. And I want to take that and put it in context and give it a backdrop which is that Tina was born shortly after the start of World War II. A couple things to note from that time period, astrologically, is that Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, took place on November 9th, 1938, with Saturn retrograde in Aries at 12 degrees, 17 minutes. Saturn kept moving along, entered Taurus, and World War II began on September 1st, 1939, with Saturn retrograde at 0 degrees 59 minutes of Taurus. Now, because it was retrograde, it started moving back, it re-entered Aries, and when Saturn reached 25 degrees 15 minutes of Aries, Tina Turner was born. So when I say that Saturn in Aries has a lot of fight about it, Tina was born into a world at war. This is the Saturn in Aries that Tina was born with. Because of course, astrologically, we are all born into a moment in time. The chart shows the position of the planets on the day we were born, at the time we were born, looking up into the sky from the place we were born. And the planetary alignments capture the qualities of that moment in time. And that moment in time 
included the early days of the Second World War. Now, being born into that moment in time reminds me of the lyrics from her song, We Don't Need Another Hero, where she sings, What do we do with our lives? We leave only a mark. Will our story shine like a light or end in the dark? Now, Saturn and Aries, I tend to think of by imagining the buds of spring. Aries is, of course, the start of spring. It's the return of life after energies slowed down, contracted, and in some sense hibernated during the winter. It's the return of light. It's the return of warmth that marks the beginning of spring. New buds begin to show up. At this point, the main thing is survival. Just starting out in the world, can we make it? Saturn can be a little tough on those buds of spring because Saturn has agendas. Saturn has time. Saturn has schedules. Saturn has an agenda. And oftentimes, it can be kind of a heavy agenda for the little buds. A friend of mine was born with Saturn and Aries, and when I was talking with him about it once, I said, it can be like your parents have your whole life planned out for you right down to the college that you're going to graduate from before you're even born. They know the plan. They know the agenda. It's all laid out. And he said that's what it was like for him. His parents had planned which college they wanted him to go to before he was even born. Now, given that I've heard countless interviews with Tina, read countless articles and interviews about and with Tina, I've picked out three quotes that seem to resonate with describing the Saturn and Aries experience in her life. She said, I didn't know my voice and my energy awakened something in the people. What did I do? I just went to work, sang, and danced. This is Saturn. I just went to work. This is the skin and bones of her life. I just went to work, sang, and danced. Another piece I like to think about with Saturn and Aries, and with Aries in general, comes from one of my favorite astrologers, Monica Domino, who worked for decades in South America. And she would often organize her lectures by going from sign to sign and covering all 12 signs. And what she says about Aries is that in her experience, Aries is the sign that goes it alone. Now, I've thought about that over the years, and I think she was onto something. I think there's something really profound in that statement. It's not that Aries people are alone. It's that Aries gets its energy from doing something on its own. It's the buds of spring surviving on their own. I did it. That's what brings Aries to life. It likes the challenge of doing something on its own. And when Saturn is in Aries, that experience can be more challenging, but all the more powerful when engaged with in that way. Now, thinking of the heaviness that someone with Saturn and Aries can be born into, the gravity that Saturn has, the heaviness that it can bring, which I think helps to understand why Tina leaving her relationship with Ike and venturing out on her own was such a turning point. And what she says is, considering my age, my gender, 
my color, and the time. Everything was strong winds against me. And you know what I say to people? Keep going. You just don't stop. When I hear that, I hear Saturn and Aries. She also said later in her life, I'm happier than I ever thought that life would become for me. That means that most of my hardships came while I was young, growing up. And then the last days, when normally people suffer from old age and sickness, my happiness came. I am. I'm really thoroughly happy. And again, I hear Saturn in Aries when she says, most of my hardships came while I was young, growing up. So to take a step back, we have Saturn in Aries conjunct the South Node in Aries. And I often think of the South Node as a foundational piece of our lives. The sign the South Node is in, or planets that it's aspected to, kind of represent a backpack that we come into life with, the essential tools that get us going right from the start. Something innate in us. The whole chart is innate in us, but the South Node seems foundational in a certain regard. And in Tina's case, Aries is a sign ruled by Mars. Tina's Saturn and South Node are ruled by Mars. Tina is inherently martial from the get-go. Action. So when she says, what did I do? I just went to work, sang, and danced. You hear the martial rulership of Aries. Now, if we look to the very bottom of her chart, what's called the IC, the cusp between the third house and the fourth house, that point in her chart is in the sign of Scorpio, which is also Mars-ruled and also a foundational point. The very bottom of our chart is like the foundation upon which our lives are built. So both of these foundational pieces for Tina, the South Node and the IC, are both ruled by Mars. So what is Mars up to in Tina's chart? And for that, we can go to chart three. We see that Mars is in the sign of Pisces in the seventh house. This is the house of relationships. Planets in the seventh house traditionally represent the partner you are with. And in more modern times and in more psychological astrology, planets in the seventh house represent what you bring to the relationship as well. Either way, we have Mars, the god of war, in the seventh house. And of course, Mars, without a doubt, is a key player in her marriage to Ike Turner. But there's more to this Mars. Mars is in a T-square. I isolated that in the chart so you can see how that configures. Mars in Pisces is in a square with a Sun-Mercury conjunction in the fourth house in the sign of Sagittarius. Mars in Pisces also squares a full moon in Gemini in the 10th house. When three or more planets are aligned in a T-square, it's a tense alignment. It's made up of squares and an opposition. Tension. But this is understood to be creative tension. 
T-squares make sure you don't fall asleep and miss your life. And for Tina, this T-square includes her sun and a full moon. Both of her lights are aligned with Mars, not to mention Mercury. So when people remark about how much energy she had and the strength and the power, we can start to understand where that comes from in this T-square. In the months prior to her death, I was listening to Tina a lot. And I had gone to see Tina, the Tina Turner musical. And in the weeks following her death, I dove in even more. And I was watching her concert from 2009. And I was watching this woman move on stage, all of the energy that she's famous for, all of the moves, all the vibrancy and the power of her voice. And I literally took out the calculator, 2009, Minus 1939 equals 70. And I was like, no, that can't be right. She's 70 and she's moving around the stage like that. And so I cleared the calculator and did it again. 2009 minus 1939. I thought it would come up 60 or something this time, but it's still 70. At 70, she was awesome. And we can start to see where that south node in Aries, Saturn in Aries, ruled by Mars, ruled by this T-square, with a full moon, captures that energy. Now, if we stick with this T-square just a little longer, there's a quote from the book, Tina, That's My Life, which was published around when she was 80, where she says, I look at myself as two people. There's the Tina who was on stage, and then there's the woman in the back of it all, the foundation, and that's Entity, the character I play in Mad Max. She had to go through so much when all was lost, when the world seemed to be coming to an end. She could not be anything else but very strong. And that's why I could really relate to her life. Whatever happens to me, when it's time to get something done, I do it. That's the kind of role I always wanted to play in a movie. Not a victim, but a warrior queen. Now imagine that. I think that quote captures the essence of that T-square, the essence of her martial soul, and it shows her profoundly connected to imagination to this fictional character, Auntie Entity from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Tina is connected to the life of the psyche, to her psyche, which means she's not only living in the spirit of the times, she lived through the spirit of the depths. When Carl Jung said that the decisive question is whether you're connected to something infinite or not, because when you are connected to something infinite, to something timeless, you don't get caught in all of the petty things in life. I think Tina is a brilliant example of living connected to timelessness, connected to the infinite. And with that in mind, I want to mention her Mercury. So her T-square is the moon squaring Mars, the sun squaring Mars, and Mercury squaring Mars. But her Mercury retrograde in Sagittarius is positioned as an evening star 
or more technically, of the evening. It's not quite an evening star because you can't see it in the sky. If Mercury was further away from her sun, you might be able to see it in the evening sky after the sun sets. But Tina's Mercury is invisible in the sky, and being of the evening and retrograde, it's considered the most mystical of all of the Mercuries. It's tapped into the unconscious. It's in the underworld. So I have no doubt that this adds to the connection to timelessness, the connection to something collective, and how when listening to her voice over the years, I have asked myself so many times, how does she do that? It's like she connects us to the infinite as well. And I can really only speak for myself, but I feel it when I listen to her. One of the reasons I keep going back. So chart one is Tina's natal chart. Chart two looks at Saturn and Aries conjunct the south node in Aries. Chart three is the T-square involving Mars, the Sun, Mercury, and the full moon. And now I want to look at chart four, which is Uranus in the 10th house of career and reputation in the sign of Taurus, which is ruled by Venus. Now we understand Uranus as the revolutionary in the sky. Uranus shakes things up, and to the extent that anything might be considered predictable, Uranus always provides the unpredictable, something new. In Taurus, this Uranus is ruled by Venus, the planet of love and beauty, of harmony, in relationships, and values. Now I'll get to much more about Venus. But I want to play an audio quote that seems to bring out this combo of Uranus in the 10th house of career and reputation, brings out the nature of Uranus, especially when Venus comes into the picture as well. This is pulled from an interview she did when she was releasing her album called Break Every Rule, the album that came after Private Dancer, and she's talking about the title track. And this song is actually speaking about, you know, I'll do anything for you, you know, and I'll be, be a fool. I'm so in love with you. It's just a woman when a woman, and I'm that kind of woman. When I am in love, I am totally vulnerable. I, and I don't take a man. It's almost as if I've known him another lifetime. I've known him before. It's honest and true love. I don't have shallow relationships. They're very much in depth. And I think that's it's a waste of time for me otherwise, and I think that's why I sort of just don't flaunt around with a lot of meaningless relationships. That is what that one is. It sort of speaks of the, the type of love that I give. Well, why did you choose it as the title of the album? Well, huh, people come and say, I have to get your autograph. Women come and say, I have to get your autograph because my son is always trying to get me to go back to work or go back to playing my piano. Blah, blah, blah. And I say, no, I'm too old. And they say, well, Tina Turner did it. It seems that I've broken all the rules. I said it once years ago. Um, I went into the, the Fairmont Hotel, and I went in with a rock and roll band wearing karate clothes with different color belts because I didn't have time to do wardrobe. And I took an old mini dress from a French designer, and I pulled my hair up in a punk style, and we had a standing ovation. And the reviews said, Tina Turner broke all the rules last night. She went into the Fairmont and pulled the cobwebs down from 
Nob Hill. I've been breaking the rules for the last 10 years. The older woman say thank you for allowing us to punk our hair up again and wear short dresses. I, th- I thought it was apropos for me. You look at that, you, you never think that I'm nearing 50. But I don't even care. I, what do I feel? Sometimes I feel like I can't even put an age on myself. That is breaking the rules, breaking the traditions, breaking the old, breaking old habits. Now, I consider that classic, Tina, breaking all the rules. Uranus in the 10th house. And I actually think that while Uranus is definitely revolutionary, revolution is a heavy word. And it actually seems more common that Uranus is about breaking the rules, not following the rules, bucking tradition. If the 10th house is about career and reputation, and how the world sees you, perhaps Break Every Rule is her most fitting album title. So talking about relationships with a Venus-ruled Uranus, what is Venus up to in Tina's chart? And for that, we can go to chart five, where we see Venus in Sagittarius in the fifth house. Now, Venus has her joy in the fifth house, no matter what sign she's in. The fifth house is the house of love. It's the house of creativity. It's the house of creative self-expression. And Venus in the fifth house in Sagittarius brings with it intimations of a woman traveling around the world, exploring and having fun. Sagittarius is a spiritual sign. It's the seeker. It's the quest for meaning and purpose. It's fiery. It's confident. And Tina seems to have known her purpose, what brought her life meaning from a very young age. And with this Venus, we also see another T-square. We see Venus in Sagittarius squaring Jupiter, and we see Venus squaring Neptune. And Jupiter is opposite Neptune. So we have a Venus-Jupiter-Neptune T-square, immutable signs. So while Tina has this foundational martial piece to her, she has this other very powerful Venusian sense about herself. And I love when I'm listening to interviews or reading interviews with her, especially from the 1980s, how much of her music expressed herself, her nature as a woman, and how much she thought about other women listening to her music. And where Tina's Mars T-square brought this strength and energy connected to both of her lights, Venus, Jupiter, and Neptune is a very expansive, very spiritual, very timeless T-square. It has a larger-than-life quality about it that she seems to have lived into so well. I love how in an interview she was asked if along the way somebody believed in her that made a difference without missing a beat. She said, me. She believed in herself. That's, of course, the sun in Sagittarius, the sun in the sign of belief. But it's also this Venus in Sagittarius as well. And I thought I would play one more audio quote that I feel captures something really vital about this T-square. And this is where she's talking about the song I'll Be Thunder, which is the final track on her Break Every Rule album. 
you mentioned Rupert Hine, and the other song of his, which is on Break Every Rule, is I'll Be Thunder. I'll Be Thunder, You'll Be Lightning, and We'll Collide on Dry Land. Quite an epic, over five minutes. That was the first one, and that was the one that I locked into because the writer, Jeanette, is very spiritual. Now, when, when I say spiritual, sometimes that word can scare people. <gasps> Religious, God, you know, going to church, no. Spiritual is touching upon the highest part within yourself, the psychological mind. And the, uh, the psychological self, it's, it's, all, it's all within and coming from another place, so to speak. That's how she writes. She wrote It Might Have Been Queen which touched upon another part of my life, uh, another belief I had. That was the first year we met, which I didn't even talk about that. We just talked about reincarnation, etc. So this song, I think Jeanette wrote about about another lifetime again, which is like that is something that she's her expertise, so to speak. She's very good at that. And this is like trying to tell the people a lot of like what David says. He speaks about spirits, Dave Bowie. And sometimes when you can't get it to work here, if you're patient enough, it'll happen on another plane. Or another lifetime. It's just you have to get to learn that the life goes on. It's, it, it is a circle within a circle, and you do go on and on. Such a beautiful message there. Now, on a personal note, three of the songs mentioned so far, I Might Have Been Queen, Break Every Rule, and I'll Be Thunder, are my three favorite Tina songs of them all. And they're the only three songs along with the fabulous B-side, Bold and Reckless, that were written by the husband and wife team of Rupert Hine and Jeanette Obstage, both of whom have passed away, and those songs were produced by Rupert Hine. So there's just something that intrigues me about looking through all of the songs. There's something mysterious that these three songs have in common that carries through in each song and makes me go back to them time and time again. And I love that Tina connected so well with this epic song, I'll Be Thunder. Because when you have two T-squares, one of them featuring the sun in Sagittarius and Mercury in Sagittarius, and the other T-square, including Venus in Sagittarius and Jupiter, it's just going to be epic. And I love that Rupert Hine, as the producer of that song, indulge in what is described as the most over-the-top production number since River Deep Mountain High propelled Phil Spector into an early retirement. And Tina herself describes the godly production with the heavens opening in I'll Be Thunder. So this Venus T-square for Tina is very spiritual and very musical, very romantic. Venus, Jupiter, and Neptune. Now, if we take a step back again and consider the fact that Tina has two T-squares in her chart, so much energy, so much creativity, and we go to the IC, that bottom place of the chart again, the cusp between the third house and the fourth house, it's in the sign of Scorpio, which is Mars ruled. And if we go 180 degrees opposite to the MC, the midheaven, the very top of the chart, which is in the sign of Taurus, which is Venus ruled, it's rather stunning to see that this spine of the chart, the backbone of Tina's chart, the backbone of any chart, 
the IC and the MC, the very top of the chart and the very bottom of the chart. Each of these positions is ruled by a T-square, with her IC being ruled by her Mars T-square and her MC being ruled by her Venus T-square. We can weave in the fact that all of Tina's personal planets, the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, are all part of these T-squares. For me, it really starts to come to life. And the last piece of the chart I want to mention, or the last pieces, is Pluto in Leo in the 12th house, and also Leo rising. This Pluto happens to be in a trine, in a harmonious angle to her Sun and Mercury in Sagittarius, adding to the impressive depth and power and substance of this woman. But these planets are also in trine to Jupiter and Pisces, giving her a grand trine. Sun, Mercury, Jupiter, and Pluto all in a harmonious relationship with each other. Pluto in the 12th is a rather fascinating placement, often hard to describe because it's so mysterious. It kind of has a boundless reach. I always like how my friend Darby Costello describes the 12th house as the house of the unremembered dead. Meaning for all of the ancestors that we remember, the 12th house reaches even further back than that. And it's often talked about in connection with past lives. Now, this grand trine connects the fourth house and the eighth house and the twelfth house in Tina's chart. If the fourth house is family, but also the underworld, and the eighth house is death, but more importantly, inheritance by death. When someone dies and you inherit something, but not just literal inheritance, but psychic inheritance, things we inherit from our ancestors psychically, this grand trine occupies very mysterious territory. But here's another quote from the book, Tina, That's My Life. It's a beautiful book full of so many of the professional photographs taken throughout Tina's life, one of which shows her hand with a ring on it. And she says, I love that my ring is visible in this photograph. It's not just a piece of jewelry. It's a connection to my spirit, my soul, my past, my present, and my future. The gold surface shows signs of wear, that suggest timelessness. I like to think that Hapshetsut, one of the first female pharaohs, might have worn a ring just like this one. I have strong feelings that I lived in Egypt in another life. In fact, a psychic once told me that I was Hatshepsut, which inspired Jeanette Obstage, Rupert Hine, and Jamie West Oram to write the song, I Might Have Been Queen, for me. And I might have been queen. I remember the girl in the fields with no name. It's such a beautiful quote, packed 
with things, packed with images, packed with imagery, packed with life. And I love how Tina, like from the start of this episode, says she believes in astrology and she talks about seeing psychics and talking about past lives. This is that connection to the timeless, that well of energy and imagery and psychic life that we draw from. Now, lastly, of course, Leah rising. It's almost like the perfect icing on this cake of life to have Leah rising, to be a performer, to travel around the world, giving concerts, to be seen. And of course, when she came back on the scene in 1984, in particular with that hair, that wig for what's love got to do with it. It's like a mane of hair, Leo the lion king or queen of the jungle. Leo rising also means that that sun in Sagittarius rules her chart. And I would say for her, born to be seen. It's not always the case with Leo rising. It depends on the rest of the chart. But when flipping through the book, Tina, That's My Life, and looking at all of these amazing images of Tina from over the years, all of these professional photographs, more candid photographs, color and black and white, it occurred to me that there's no selfies. And I kind of love that about the life of Tina. It's how other people saw Tina, how other people captured her, and how then she chose to be seen. So that concludes a look at the birth chart of Tina Turner. And now I want to move on to the transits. I've deliberated how to do this. I've never done a podcast before where I spent so much time talking about a natal chart. I don't even necessarily talk about a chart that much in, a, in articles or in webinars. But what I thought would be interesting to look at was what was going on for Tina from that time she left Ike Turner until she became Tina. Because knowing what she left and then what she became, I would expect to see something extraordinary and I was not disappointed. And then how to talk about this so it makes some kind of sense, instead of me just rambling on and on with dates and planets and aspects, because I don't even like listening to things presented that way. So what I've done, and amazingly, the transits lend themselves to this organization, is I've got four sections, one leading into the other, between October 31st, 1975, and October 31st, 1986. So this is an 11-year period of very intense transits, which I'll break down for you in a way that I hope makes sense. And I've included a slide with dates on it, so you can see how I broke these down. But one thing I found rather stunning after I put this together is to realize that it, this is an 11-year period of transits from leaving Ike to becoming Tina. And it shows how important it is to take the long game into consideration in your life and in your transits and how the planets are interacting in your chart and what you might be going through at any time. Because I doubt that Tina knew when she left Ike what she would become, how long it would take. I'm sure she had dreams. You'll hear that she had dreams, but how things are going to work out, how they're going to play out. 
is a whole other story. So it's a reminder that if we consider this 11-year arc, we don't know how things will go. We might be in a very difficult time with some very difficult transits, and there might be more on the horizon if you look ahead. Sometimes it can be really good to look far ahead. Sometimes it can be good grief, and you put that away for a while. But it's so important to consider that we don't know how things will go. And maybe it's the chart of a Sagittarian with a prominent Jupiter that shows the importance of belief and faith along the way to give it a go. And as Tina says, keep going. So I've divided this into four different sections by the transits that were going on. And it's as if it's like a relay where one set of transits ends and it hands over the baton to the next set of transits that play out over the course of these years. They come to an end and hand over the baton to the next set of transits, which conclude and then hand over the baton for the final set of transits I'm going to mention. So if you're listening and you want to take notes, the sections are first from October 31st, 1975 to August 5th, 1977. Second is August 27th, 1978, to September 12th, 1980. Third is November 11th, 1981, to September 6th, 1985. And fourth is December 21st, 1985, to October 25th, 1986. And if we call it October 31st, we've got exactly 11 years. And like I said, there's just something beautifully organized about the way this all works. So the first important date is that Tina left Ike on July 1st, 1976. Now for anyone at any time, there's likely all kinds of transits going on. And what I'm going to focus on here is the movements of the slower moving planets for the most part from Saturn onward because those are the defining transits, the real game changers, because they play out often over time. So in the time leading up to Tina leaving Ike, she had transiting Saturn in Leo conjunct her natal Pluto, which means that Saturn was transiting through the 12th house also. This began on October 31st, 1975, Saturn in the sky in Leo conjunct Pluto in Leo in her natal chart. And it continued through June 29th. And it continued through June 29th, 1976, which is the third of three exact conjunctions. Leo, of course, is the sign of the heart. And when I've talked about Saturn in Leo before in webinars, and I often like to use artist examples, I use Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees because he was born with Saturn in Leo in the 10th house. And I call it, how do you mend a broken heart? Because if Leo is the fiery sign of the heart and playfulness and creativity, sovereignty, like Saturn in Aries, Saturn in fire can generally squelch the fire at an early age. It can dampen it. And for Barry Gibb, the work of Saturn and Leo, archetypally, is how do you mend a broken heart? 
for his career, he and his brothers wrote love song after love song after love song. And Saturn ruled his fifth house of love and creativity. And he figured out a way for the love to pour out of him. So when I see this Saturn transiting conjunct Tina's Pluto, it's like for all of that time, things were getting more difficult. Things were getting more intense. The control, power struggles. Well, at the same time, for Tina, it's as if it's the consolidated power of the heart, collecting the resources of the heart to get out of the toughest situations and change the game forever. So right after Saturn made its final conjunction with Pluto by transit, she left Ike. And the following year, Saturn made its way across her Leo ascendant. The timing is extraordinary because Saturn crossing the ascendant is the archetypal new beginning. Something is coming to an end when Saturn moves through the 12th house, this mysterious house where things often come undone. I call it the Gilligan's Island transit with the idea archetypally that you set sail for a three-hour tour and then the weather starts getting rough and your tiny ship is tossed. And if it's not for the courage of your fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. There's much more to it, but the, the essence of that is where things get out of hand. Things often get out of control. So Tina leaving Ike is right on point as Saturn made its way to cross the Ascendant for a fresh start, a new beginning. And after she left Ike with nothing but her heart and her name, she went to work. Work, work, work. We heard it earlier when I was talking about Saturn and Aries. She had debts to pay off. So this period of October 31st, 1975 through August 5th, 1977 is earmarked by Saturn. Saturn conjunct Pluto three times, Saturn crossing the ascendant, and then Saturn squaring Uranus. Saturn represents limits and Pluto takes things to an extreme. And those qualities define this period of time. So she was working, doing TV shows like the Sonny and Cher show, the Brady Bunch Hour. She was doing tours, cabaret shows, earning money to pay off debts. Keeping in mind her Saturn and Aries in her natal chart, she's establishing herself, finding her standing on her own ground on her own. So Tina's working, figuring out the way forward day by day. And this leads us to the second set of transits, starting on August 27th, 1978, going until September 12th, 1980. So just over two years. And what initiates this period, the way I look at it, she's 38 years old, and on August 27th, 1978, Saturn in the sky transiting squares her sun in Sagittarius. So again, Saturn starts to define this time, but the sun is the self. And Saturn transiting the sun is often about self-definition. What are my limits? Where can I push the edges? Who am I? It can be like a time of reconstruction or a time of renovation. And when in Tina's chart, Saturn squares the sun, 
we can go back to remembering that she has two T-squares and all of the planets in those T-squares are in mutable signs. Now, what does this mean? Well, the way T-squares operate, there's always a planet or planets that first activate the T-square. Usually it's just one, and it's the planet in the earliest degrees, in this case, of the mutable signs. And in this case, it's the sun in Sagittarius. And the only reason I say planets as a possibility is if two planets are exactly conjunct, the transit will set off both. But in T-squares, you never just get the one planet without all of the others. So transiting planets activate one, and they activate them all. But the exact transits have an order to them, from the earliest degrees to the later degrees. And what's so extraordinary in Tina's case is that a transiting planet, like in this case, Saturn, first activates her Mars T-square, and then it activates her Venus T-square. So when Saturn squares her sun, it's going to go on to activate Mars, and then the moon, and then Mercury, before moving on to transit Venus, and Neptune, and Jupiter before completing its move through the mutable sign that it's transiting in, in this case, Saturn in Virgo. So the T-squares get activated in her chart. Things are in motion. So she leaves Ike. She goes out on her own. She starts working on her own simply to get by, simply to survive and pay off debts. But when Saturn squares her sun, something different begins. She's still working. She's still doing a lot of the same things. But it's early in this period that she happens to meet Roger Davies, who becomes her manager. And it's not just Saturn activating her T-squares. It's during this time that she experiences her Uranus opposition. Transiting Uranus in the sky in Scorpio is opposing her natal Uranus in Taurus which when I saw that, I gasped. Because if that first period was Saturn-dominated and it allowed her to get by and work and pay off debts, this second period of Saturn beginning to activate the chain of T-squares also includes her Uranus opposition, which means nothing is likely to get settled. It can feel like things are upset, but here it's as if Tina cannot get stuck in a groove. Uranus is known as the Awakener, in addition to the Rule Breaker, in addition to revolutionary energy. And the Uranus opposition is often called the midlife crisis, which I say just depends, because we really don't know what midlife is for anyone until we know the end of their life. But the Uranus opposition like transits of the outer planets in general, bring opportunities to not get stuck in a Saturn groove. So Saturn is making its way to the sun in her chart, to Mars, to the moon, to Mercury, Venus, Neptune, and Jupiter. And right in the middle of all this, Uranus starts to upset the cart. And with transits like this, it's not always what happens exactly during that time, but what it awakens in you that you may take opportunity with later. 
something gets awakened during the Uranus opposition. So keep that in mind when we look at the next set of transits. And the dates for these transits are November 11th, 1981 through September 6th, 1985. So after Uranus began to upset any kind of groove that Tina might have gotten herself into, working, 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 this next period begins with transiting Pluto in Libra opposing her Saturn in Aries. And I think this is where her Uranus opposition took form. Because if Pluto in Libra has to do with relationships, and Saturn in Aries has this quality of going it alone, and Uranus has awakened something, it was on December 7th, 1981, that Tina gave an interview with People magazine, and for the first time spoke openly about her relationship with Ike what it was really like. She talks about how doing that, she always felt like it would hamper her career. But again, she says she talked to a psychic who said, no, 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 it's going to have the exact opposite effect. And it's in that statement that I hear Uranus. We think things are going to go one way. Left to her own devices, she wouldn't talk about it necessarily. Uranus comes along and provides a fresh perspective. Out came the story. So that was published on December 7th, 1981. And on December 27th, Neptune in the sky was transiting, conjunct her Venus in Sagittarius, which means it was also activating her Venus T-square, a T-square which includes Neptune. So on January 3rd, 1982, it was Tina's first exact square between Neptune in the sky and Neptune in her chart. The famous or infamous Neptune square Neptune transit. And before saying a little bit about that, it was just later that same month, on January 31st, 1982, that Uranus in the sky in Sagittarius was conjunct her sun in Sagittarius the first of three passes, which kicked off Uranus transiting her Mars T-square. This is a lot for anyone to deal with. And this period of enormous change for her started with her coming out with the story of her relationship with Ike, framed, of course, within the context of what she left behind, what she broke free from, what she got out of, with the future ahead of her. So these transits from the outer planets to the outer planets, to themselves, for example, Uranus opposing Uranus, or Neptune squaring Neptune, and there's another Pluto squaring Pluto, we all experience them. And because the outer planets are considered collective or transpersonal, and they move so slowly, while they are the game changers, we often don't feel like we're in control during those times, which is really one of the points of them, is that we are moved by something greater than ourselves. But they always root in the natal chart. So for Tina, for example, when Uranus was opposing her natal Uranus, 
For her, it's Uranus in the 10th house, as I've talked about. It's like it awoke that sense of break every rule. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do it differently than the way that it's been done. And I'm going to have to do it differently than the way that I've done it before. I have to try new things. But just going for a moment back to these transits of Uranus opposing Uranus, Neptune squaring Neptune and Pluto squaring Pluto, there's no set order to the way these come in life. Some people experience Uranus opposite Uranus first. Some people experience Neptune square Neptune first. These transits can last longer for some people than others. Some people experience Pluto squaring Pluto in their mid-30s. And because of Pluto's eccentric orbit, which spends a short period of time, relatively speaking, in certain signs and a very long time in others, Carl Jung didn't have his Pluto square Pluto transit until age 78. There seems to be a range for Uranus opposing Uranus of about six years where some people experience it at around age 39 and others maybe not until their mid-40s. My point is for Tina, she experienced Uranus opposite Uranus first, and then came Neptune square Neptune. Now, I know Neptune is usually talked about in astrology as illusion and delusion. When I was originally learning astrology and started to comprehend that Neptune in the sky would be squaring my natal Neptune at some point, I asked an astrologer about that and they said that for them it was the most depressing time of their life. And inquiring with others, I didn't find anything that varied too much from that narrative. Just lots of talk about confusion, delusion, and delusion which didn't really make any sense to me. It's not that I doubt that that was their experience of it. It's just, philosophically speaking, I'm not sure that the, the planets and the stars and astrology brings that kind of an inherent quality to transits. It gets complicated, of course, because I've talked about Saturn in Pisces and its powerful connection to melancholy, and it makes all the difference to actually understand melancholy and the role that it plays in life. But personally, I went into my own Neptune square Neptune transit open to possibilities, approaching it from a neutral perspective, and also understanding that Neptune has a great, powerful connection to the imagination, which I've talked about at conferences and in classes over the years and we'll do more on this podcast along the way, not this episode, but I found it to be an enchanting experience. And so it's amazing to me that during this time in Tina's life, when Neptune activated her Venus T-square, including a square to natal Neptune, her manager, Roger Davies, asked what she wanted in the world. Essentially, what was her dream? And Tina said she wanted to sell out stadiums the way Mick Jagger and the Stones did. Now, keeping in mind that this is when Neptune is activating her Venus-Jupiter-Neptune T-square, and Neptune is often associated with confusion and delusion, 
I ask, are you going to be the one to tell Tina Turner that she's delusional, that she wants to sell out stadiums the way the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger do? No. The point of Neptune Square Neptune is to have that vision. It's to have that dream. It just requires a very different kind of outlook than, for example, Saturn provides. Saturn wants things practical. Saturn is risk-averse. Saturn helps us build things and stabilize things and give structure to things. But Neptune works much more in the vein of the Romantics, which I've talked about, and more a perspective that says, tell me what you long for, and I will tell you who you are. Neptune works in the way of longings. Neptune's communication style is dreams. Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto all have a profound connection to mystery and uncertainty, and to go into these transits open, with intention, with longing, when it comes to Neptune. You never actually know if something is a delusion until it turns out to be, and who knows when that would be. And who's to say, if something doesn't work out the first time, you don't try again. Like Tina says, keep going. You'll figure it out. But this kind of transit, this kind of period, where Neptune is activating her Venus T-square, Uranus is beginning to activate her Marshall T-square by transiting across her sun, which means Uranus is going to continue on transiting across her Venus T-square. And as if it's not enough during this time, Saturn happened to move through Libra and oppose her natal Saturn, while transiting Pluto was also opposite her natal Saturn. And as this period built in her life, Rod Stewart ended up seeing her at the Ritz and asked her to join him on Saturday Night Live. It was during this time that she opened up for the Rolling Stones. She started taking chances. She remade a song called Ball of Confusion, originally done by The Temptations. She recorded it with members of the European new wave group Heaven 17. All this eventually led to her recording Al Green's Let's Stay Together, which if you go back to the very beginning of the podcast, and Tina talked about her connection with London, her recording of Let's Stay Together became a hit in London. She had signed to Capitol Records, and because of that hit, she was given the go-ahead to record with Roger Davies as her manager what would become the Private Dancer album. One of the ways that I talk about Neptune squaring Neptune is that it's a time period where the weave of your life, where the threads that the fates have spun and woven your life into the greater fabric of things, loosens up. That's the confusing part, or can be the confusing part. But when that weave loosens up, it's as if certain things can be re-threaded and rewoven in accordance with the dreams and longings of our soul, which I don't say naively. I, there, it's complicated, part of why I'm doing this podcast. But I like how it was during this time period that Tina Turner was introduced to a song called What's Love Got to Do With It? Now, you may not know that that song is a remake 
And the original version is by a European pop group called Bucks Fizz. And when Tina heard the demo of it, she did not like it. She was not interested. But during this Neptunian time, Roger Davies and the song's writer, Terry Britton, felt certain that if Tina recorded it, it would be a hit. So they were persistent, and Tina gave in a little and listened to Terry Britton describe the song and help Tina find her way into it, as if this song and working with it is a metaphor for Neptune Square Neptune. Loosening the song up and finding your way into it, Tina figured out how to make it a Tina song. And of course, it went on to become number one in the United States and all over the world. And it was in May 1984, getting to the tail end of this period of transit upon transit upon transit, that the album Private Dancer was released. So if Private Dancer was released in May 1984, and this period of transits I've picked out goes until September 6, 1985, what happened next? What happened after Private Dancer was released? That's when Tina experienced Pluto squaring Pluto. November 12th, 1984 through September 6th, 1985. Now, Pluto, of course, we know is the planet of transformation, a planet of power, a planet of going to extremes. It's also profoundly psychological. So a lot of the bad reputation can come from things being too literal. And what I love about Tina's transit of Pluto square Pluto, not just the emergence of a superstar, a global superstar, but this includes her starring in the movie Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And if we go back to that quote about Auntie Entity and how Tina related to that character, for Tina to play a fictional character living in the wake of losing it all, finding her power in an extreme situation, I go back to those lyrics I quoted earlier from We Don't Need Another Hero, where Tina sings, So what do we do with our lives? We leave only a mark. Will our story shine like a light or end in the dark? Then the high point of the song is when she sings, Is it all or nothing? And to think about her singing those words in the wake of everything that she's been through, not just in her life, but in this transit period that I've been spotlighting, is it all or nothing? This is when, with Pluto scoring Pluto, Tina stepped into it all. Now, I grouped these into four transits, so there's one left, and this one's pretty easy to talk about. From December 21st, 1985 to October 25th, 1986, this was when Saturn was conjunct her son, Saturn in Sagittarius, Activating her T-square, Saturn conjunct the Sun, Saturn then squaring Mars, Saturn opposing the Moon, and then Saturn being conjunct Mercury, going retrograde and going backwards over those and moving forwards again to finally conjunct Mercury for the last time on October 25th, 1986, 
This echoes the period right after she left Ike, when she was working, 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 just trying to establish herself, just trying to get out on her own two feet and figure out what to do. Except this time when Saturn activates that T-square, she's working, 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 selling out concerts in arenas like Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, a global superstar. And there you have it, this 11-year period of Tina's life, from when she left Ike to when she became Tina Turner, simply the best. Now, I want to conclude the episode on a Sagittarian note, and also a personal note. I want to go back to that time when I first listened to I Might Have Been Queen, and who knows how many times I've listened to it over the years. The bridge of the song are some of my favorite lyrics ever. And it wouldn't be until years later, once I learned astrology, and once I learned about sinistry charts, how our charts interact with other people's charts, what attracts us to people, what repels us to people. And I looked at my chart with Tina's chart to see that her son in Sagittarius sits exactly on my IC, exactly at the bottom of my chart. So it was actually looking at it from an astrological perspective, no small thing listening to Tina, then and now. She just seems to hit that deepest place in me and a foundational piece. And these lyrics from I Might Have Been Queen might just be the most profound Sagittarius lyrics ever written. It's Sagittarius, so I get to be dramatic and exaggerated about it. But you know, when Tina sings it, she means it. She sings... I look up to the stars with my perfect memory. I look through it all, and my future's no shock to me. I look down, but I see no tragedy. I look up to my past, a spirit running free. I look down, I look down, and I'm there in history. Oh, I'm a sole survivor. And with that, Tina, you will be missed. May we meet again somewhere in the stars. This is Sean Nygaard with Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes.